So Larry Seidentop, in his book, Inventing the Individual, The Origins of Western Liberalism, tells the story of how the individual became the organizing social unit in the Western world. That is, how civil society emerged with its distinction between public and private spheres and its emphasis on the role of conscience and choice. It is the story of how individual moral agency gained public prediction, public protection with enforceable basic rights and equality before the law. Since the 16th century and the advent of the nation state, people in the West have come to understand society as an association of individuals. Today, we see human beings as individuals with rights and the ability to act as rational agents who can reason and make choices and are in this way equal. Ancient Greeks and Romans understood society differently. They saw it as an association of families, each with their own religious cult. The crucial distinction was not between the public and private spheres, but between the public and domestic spheres. The domestic sphere was understood to be the sphere of the family, not individuals endowed with rights. The domestic sphere was also a sphere of inequality because inequality of roles was fundamental to ancient worship. The ancient family was like a ch church. It was not only a civil institution, it was a religious cult as well. The paterfamilias, the oldest male head of the household, acted not only as an autocratic ruler, but also as a high priest. The family was everything. Its memories, rituals, and roles governed social actions and norms. Family worship was the source of personal identity. The only lasting human association in the ancient world was the family, and the basis of that association was religious belief. Fulfilling the obligations of one's role in family worship provided ancient people with an identity and an afterlife. The inviolability of the domestic sphere and the exclusive character of family worship were intimately joined together. The family was the basic unit of social reality. It was a necessary building block of larger social units. Nothing could violate its domain. For larger associations to develop, new gods had to emerge. Each extension of human association required the establishment of a new worship and recognition of a divinity superior to the, the domestic divinities. Clans, tribes, cities, nations, and empires were all extensions of the family. The primary building block of society in the ancient world was the family. New gods and religions had to be created for larger associations to arise. First came extended families, then clans and tribes, followed by cities and finally nations. The ancient city came into being when several tribes came together by common worship. The city that emerged was a confederation of cults, all modeled on the family and its worship. 
the worship of successive layers of gods, from family gods to tribal gods to city gods, left no space for individual conscience or choice. Worship consumed ancient people's thoughts and actions. No sphere of life was free from its control. The foundation of the ancient city was the assertion of hereditary religious identity. Family, tribe, and city associations were the core of ancient people's identities. The ancient world did not recognize individual rights. No one could make any claims against the city or its gods. There was no formal liberty of thought or action. Citizens belonged to the city, body, and soul. For citizens to be conquered by an invading enemy meant to lose one's personal identity. At the core of ancient thinking was the assumption of natural inequality. Ancient Greeks and Romans saw the world as naturally unequal. Some people did not have the ability to reason. Reason was an attribute of the ruling class. Slaves were born to be slaves by nature. Everyone had the role they were born into. Ancient Judaism would eventually upend these assumptions by basing the law not on reason, but on a source beyond reason. By the first century CE, an important Jewish diaspora brought radical monotheism to the attention of many Greek and Latin-speaking urban dwellers around the Mediterranean. The Apostle Paul, the founder of Christianity and the author of a number of books in the New Testament, founded a community of natural equality. Paul writes that in Christianity, there was no more Greek or Jew, male or female, slave or free. All were equal in God's eyes. Within the church, slave and master were brothers. Belief in the Christ makes possible the emergence of a primary role shared equally by all, what Seidentop calls the equality of souls. In Paul's writings, we see the emergence of a new sense of justice founded on the assumption of moral equality rather than on natural inequality. Early Christians saw the crucifixion as a moral revolution. Understanding and immortality could now be obtained through individual moral agency. This opened up a new reality where human beings understood themselves as autonomous agents. As Christianity grew, so did persecution. By the third century, a cult of martyrdom re redefined heroism. Roman authorities described martyrs as enemies of the human race because of their insistence on standing alone. Martyrdom demonstrated the exercise of individual will. It rendered the idea of moral equality more tangible and easily remembered. Martyrs made the conscience and will visible. Christian martyrs offered a model of heroism, open to all, a democratic model of heroism. After the era of martyrdom, monks began to cultivate communities of common governance. The movement of monks into the wilderness 
involved the repudiation of traditional forms of community, in particular the city or polis. By leaving their families and the city, monks offered a world founded on individual conscience. The form of community consistent with the equality of souls was essentially a community of shared values. St. Benedict, for example, sought to eliminate social distinctions within the monastery. Monasticism associated the ideas of law and of obedience, not with unthinking custom or external force, but with individual consent and the role of conscience. By the fourth century, the concept of the will provided a new foundation for philosophical reflection. In this view, obedience led to understanding, not the other way around. The idea was revolutionary. It undermined the claims that a superior citizen class was born to rule. Some have attributed the birth of, indiv of the individual to Augustine. He portrayed the will as the middle ground between reason and appetite. This embedded the will in our conception of the self. Self-consciousness undercut mere social identities. The ancient view of the will, of the will as merely an act of desire gave way to the concept of the will as a power of the soul distinct from intellect and appetite. Christian belief destroyed the ancient family, that is the family as a cult or religious association. The religious character of the ancient family made it, rather than the individual, the fundamental social unit. By transferring religious authority from the father to a separate priesthood, the church curtailed the authority of the family head and relaxed the bonds they held over family members. After the fall of the empire, bishops became the de facto rulers of cities. The distinctive thing about the bishop's new urban role was that it was based on an appeal that was democratic rather than aristocratic. The medieval city was more inclusive. The poor and slaves were now considered part of the city. The church had long been a refuge from those excluded from citizenship. The conception of society as founded on natural inequality was giving way to a conception of a society as founded on moral equality an association of individuals rather than an association of families. The development amounted to nothing less than the emergence of a principal basis for representative government. Monasticism laid the foundations of self-governed communities based on moral equality. Underlying the practice in the early church of electing bishops and abbots and sometimes even popes, was the principle that superiors should be chosen or elected by those who would be subordinate to them. The principles of the consent of the governed and equality under the law began to emerge. The emphasis on individual will and understanding opened up the way to a new understanding of the foundation of social order. Authority began to be understood as flowing upward. 
The displacement of moral authority from the family to clergy reveals the, subvers the subversive side of the new religion. The domestic sphere was no longer beyond public control. The individual began to emerge as the unit of subjection, a social ro role as well as a moral status. Christian humility required that rulers speak to the conscience of every person regardless of his or her social condition. Peasant uprising signaled the willingness to challenge social, social subordination. The focus on justice became more egalitarian. By the ninth and 10th centuries, ancient slavery, slavery virtually disappeared from royal and ecclesiastical estates. The new universality, the attributing of conscience and will to all souls hope to sound the death knell of ancient slavery. Christian beliefs provided grounds for an appeal against injustice that had not been available in the ancient world. A new, more egalitarian voice can be heard in medieval protest. Preaching about another world in which God's justice prevailed provided a basis for discontent founded not simply on desperation, but on self-respect. A new sense of social justice was born out of the ashes of natural inequality. With this new sense of human inequality came a new law, not based on custom and power, but on universal principles superior to human custom and founded upon equality under the law. The emphasis on individual will and consciousness opened up a new way of understanding the social order. The domestic sphere was no longer invulnerable. The individual gained a new role and moral status as the primary unit of subjection. First through monasticism and then by the development of canon law, the church became an example of a unified legal system founded on equal subjection of individuals. Kings were the first to recognize the advantages of this new idea of sovereignty and the jurisdictions over individuals it conferred. As popes claimed sovereignty over their own communities, civic leaders began to view their authority in the same way. By the 12th and 13th centuries, many secular rulers sought to emulate the church's centralized form of governments. Out of the ashes of the struggle for power between popes and kings arose the nation state. The claim of equal subjection, subjection to the sovereign authority had remarkable implications. The right to command and the duty to obey were no longer determined by hereditary or customary roles. The recognition of individual conscience and free, free will democratized the ability to reason, something previously limited to the elite. Canon lawyers focused on intent, redefining personal responsibility and creating a sphere of personal autonomy. The assumption of moral equality gave rise to the claim of equal liberty. By the 13th century, lawyers were defending a number of individual rights on the grounds of natural law. Writing to defend Pope Gregory VII's deposition of Emperor Henry IV, 11th century writer, Manigold of La Tutenbach 
argued that the authority of the king was conditional on the consent of the government. It says, rather than reading that to you, I would just say it was the consent of the governed that if the king were to engage in tyranny, then the citizens no longer need to be loyal or obey him. By the 13th century, philosophy emerged out of theology. The university came into the scene as something entirely new. It gave individual reason and dissent a public space. Claims of conscience, civil liberties, and government by consent became central themes of the 14th century. For 14th century philosopher William of Ockham, the same person who articulated what is now called Ockham's razor, the idea that the simplest explanation is best, also called for equal liberty. For Ockham, rational agency was a birthright shared equally by all human beings. Ancient philosophers had focused on fate, pride, and shame, but nominalists like Ockham replaced those assumptions with the assertion of individual rights. Ockham's theory of natural rights subjected the ancient idea of natural law to the golden rule, to love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule introduced a principle of justice that overthrew the ancient assumption of natural inequality. For Ockham, the power of rulers should be limited by the rights of their subjects. Human agency and divine agency were joined in Ockham's mind by claims of right reason and natural rights. Those claims projected the, protected the role of individual conscience. The individual reemerged and burst into the scene during the Italian Renaissance. The Renaissance and the Reformation threw off the shackles of religious authority. Liberal secularism in Europe came to be understood as essentially anti-religious. At the same time, the conviction, the conviction that uncoerced belief provides the true foundation for legitimate authority was a product of Christianity. It encapsulated the reflections on the role of conscience by canon lawyers, theologians, and philosophers from the 12th to 15th centuries. The egalitarian understanding of society implied by the idea of sovereignty of moral equal, morally equal individuals dispersed moral authority in a way incompatible with the ancient view of authority as ownership or dominion. Claims of authority had to make sense and even be acceptable to individual conscience. The vision provided the deep moral foundation for constitutionalism and the formal dispersal of authority and power. The belief in a fundamental equality of status as the proper basis for a legal system, a defense of individual liberty through the assertion of fundamental or natural rights and the conclusion that only a representative form of a government is appropriate for society are all rooted in the assumption of moral equality. The egalitarian model, moral intuitions generated by the care of individual souls, not only undermined slavery, it became a formidable weapon when combined with the idea of sovereignty. 
creating a sovereign authority provided a means of liberating people from the ties of inherited status and custom. The understanding of authority as the delegation of power by consent would lead to the emergence of representative government. It's conventional to say that the doctrines of liberalism and secularism first raised their heads in the early modern period, but it actually emerged in fits and starts over several centuries. The history of the development of liberal secularism from 16th century natural rights theory through the writings of Grotus and Hobbes, Locke's and Locke to early 19th century thinkers such as Constant Tocqueville and J.S. Mill might be described as the liberal moment in European history. The sequence began with insistence on equality of status, moved on to the assertion of a range of basic human rights, and concluded with the case for self-government. From Hobbes' insistence on basic human equality in preparation for defining sovereignty in terms of equal subjection, through Locke's defense of human freedom by identifying a range of natural rights, to Rousseau's making the case for sovereignty of the people and self-government, each of these three steps in modern political thought had its counterpart in the evolution of medieval canon law. These proto-liberal beliefs only came together in the 16th century when they were deployed against the church's claim to have the right to enforce belief. Liberal secularism sought to limit the role of government through a structure of fundamental rights that created and protected a sphere of individual freedom, a private sphere. The crux of secularism is that the belief in moral equality means that humans should be free to make their own decisions, a sphere of conscience and free action. In the United States, the absence of both the monolithic church and aristocracy meant that Americans instinctively grasped the moral symmetry, symmetry between secularism with its prized civil liberty and religion, where secularism creates the necessary condition for authentic belief. The first is to reduce liberalism to the endorsement of market economies, as in the allegation of neoliberalism. The second he calls individualism, the retreat into the private sphere of family and friends at the expense of civic spirit and political participation. Now, as you know, there we go. I believe that liberalism is under attack from both the left and the right. The right wants to own the libs and the left wants to disown them. By this, I mean that on the left, as well as on the right, there are propagandists, both foreign and domestic, who are hostile toward liberalism. Our democracy and our system of government are liberal institutions. The Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution sprung forth from the liberalism of the Enlightenment. I'm not ashamed to defend our liberal democracy. It is based on individual rights. One person, one vote. Human and civil rights arose from the recognition of individual conscience. 
We protect the role of dissent and free speech because we believe in individual conscience. People have the right to make their own choices and to participate equally in society. The right to equal protection of the law is based on the idea that individuals have rights. Any attack on the foundations of our liberal form of government is an attack on our democracy. That doesn't matter whether it comes from a source we like or from one we despise. In fact, it's more dangerous when it comes from someone we respect and admire. People can be on our side and still be wrong. It's also important to recognize that socialism isn't liberalism. It's a radical ideology that is different from liberalism. It focuses on class and class consciousness, conscience. It also believes in revolution rather than incremental change. Attacks on liberalism on the left are often ideological. Propagandists use race, religion, and ideology, among other things, to divide us. Some of these propagandists don't have our best interest at heart. The truth is we really don't know our leaders. We are presented with an image of them, but we don't know who they really are. They might be good people seeking to change the world, but even they have conflicts and multiple motives and agendas. The care with which one composes their propaganda tells us something about the person and group disseminating it. Whether it's intentional disinformation or simply misinformation, the ideas we are exposed to by the propaganda we consume can be misleading, divisive, and even destructive. In other words, don't believe everything you hear and read, even if it comes from someone you admire and respect. On December 18th last year, I received a piece of propaganda that prompted me to do this presentation. I saw it as an example of the attack on liberalism coming from the left, and I wanted to counter it right away. It came in the form of an email, a fundraising campaign. By the way, I define propaganda as any persuasive materials disseminated to the public. Hence, advertising, much of the news media, political messaging, and fundraising campaigns are all forms of propaganda. We must be critical of the propaganda we consume. The email came from Angela Davis on behalf of Jewish Voice for Peace. In that email, in, in bold and in large font, she wrote, to win, we must move past the insidious individualism that keeps us separate and powerless. Notice, this is not the individualism Sidentop warns us about, the individualism that focuses only on one's personal life rather than one's role in public discussions and decision-making. Our rights as individuals actually make us powerful. It is as individuals that we participate in the common good. It is as individuals that we reserve the right to dissent. We participate in social movements and self-governance as individuals. Socialists are currently working to develop a race-class consciousness, yet, the very foundation of our liberal democracy rests on individual rights. You may say, well, we can have a race-class consciousness and respect individual rights. But the question remains here, why liberalism? There are so many more important things to condemn. There's fascism, racism, conspiracy theories, and all sorts of falsehood. 
Is individualism really insidious? Is the fact that we are individuals really what's separating us and making us powerless? If this really the message that needs to be put in an enlarged, emboldened text, maybe it was just a guilt trip. Give us money. Don't be selfish. Give us money. But it's still wrong. Should we then give our individuality and power over to the group? Angela Davis may think so, and she may have her motives for saying so, but individual rights is the basis of human and civil rights and the basis of our freedoms and our liberal form of government. No matter what you think about her and Jewish Voice for Peace, Davis's attack on the individual was both unnecessary and misleading. The fact that we are individuals does not divide us, but makes us stronger. Individualism is not an insidious threat to our unity. We have the right to be individuals with our own conscience and opinions and the equal right to participate. There are things that separate us. Being individuals is not one of them.